This is part two of this week's podcast. We're picking up with Congresswoman Jayapal discussing domestic violence and the resignation of Rob Porter from the White House. And then we'll hear from Elizabeth Guzman, the delegate from Virginia who defeated a eight-term Republican incumbent there. We saw these horrible pictures um, coming out around a staff member there uh, who is no longer there, thankfully. Um, can you talk about what, I mean, yeah, what went through your mind when, ter- you, when yeah. you saw that? The terrible pictures were about the ex-wife of the staff member, who was Rob Porter, who had the position of staff secretary, which, you know, sounds like just an assistant, but it's not. It's the it's a very um, high up position. That person is responsible for every piece of paper that gets in front of the president, basically. You see him in all the TV coverage, you know, right next to President Trump, right next to John Kelly. And, um, you know, the reality is that this this was a shocker in many ways, but then now in retrospect, maybe not. You know, you have to remember that this president has multiple charges of sexual assault against him. He defended Roy Moore. He defended Roger Ailes. He defended Corey Lewandowski. But the shocker may have been to see that it was Chief of Staff John Kelly who actually knew about these allegations directly from the FBI because Rob Porter had not been able to get a permanent security clearance, which he needs for that job. It's a very highly classified job. And John Kelly, chief of staff to Trump, just decided to ignore the information that the FBI gave him, saying that there were allegations, substantiated allegations of domestic abuse and um, from these ex-wives, two ex-wives. And John Kelly just decided to ignore that and promoted him to a very high position. And so when this news first came out, John Kelly actually called Porter a, quote, man of integrity and urged him to stay in office. In other words, he wanted to protect an alleged abuser with very credible allegations against him. And this isn't about partisanship. You know, um, I called for John Kelly to step down because I believe that he has uh, not done a good job in protecting the president. And he is, um, you know, as much, I mean, look, the Me Too movement wasn't just about the people who abuse. It wasn't just about the abusers. It was also about the systems and the people who protect those abusers. And that's what John Kelly did. And so I did call on him to step down and to resign. And I've done that with members of my own party. This is not a partisan issue. We just cannot tolerate this. And now there are reports of another staffer resigning in the White House because of sexual assault allegations. And now Trump has come out after being silent for a few days on this whole thing to defend these guys. And it's just a strange time that we live in, but I just have to take a moment to give an enormous shout out to the countless women out there who are coming forward to tell their stories and lifting up this horrendous behavior and and the institutions that participate and the people that participate in their cover-up. So just on a positive note, in the House, we did just pass a very significant Me Too bill that Jackie Spear, Representative Jackie Spear from California, led, and it will now change the entire process in the House because... You may remember this came out a little bit ago under the current system that was created by a 1995 law. Staffers who are alleging sexual assault actually have to go through months of required mediation and counseling before they can even formally file a complaint. It's just crazy. And so the bill that we passed on Tuesday 
would ensure that the mediation and the counseling are no longer mandatory, and it would provide staffers with access to an advocate providing legal advice and representations, and members of Congress who are accused of sexual harassment would personally be on the hook for any settlement payments because there were hundreds of thousands of dollars that were coming out of um, you know, taxpayer money to pay for um, payoffs. And so any lawmaker who agrees to a settlement would actually have to reimburse the taxpayers within 90 days and would be barred from using any of the office funds to pay the cost. So there's a lot of stuff here in this bill, but it's it's a it's a big big deal. I mean, accountability really has to start at the top, I think. It does, and we need to send a clear message that just because someone is an elected official, they don't get to, they don't get to abuse. That's just not okay. And now we are joined from Virginia's Prince William County by the new State House delegate for that region, Elizabeth Guzman. I am so, so happy to welcome you onto the show as um, a new delegate in Virginia. No, thank you. Thank you. I am happier to have the honor. <laughs> You know, to speak with you on this podcast, uh, we definitely all uh, female immigrants in this country look up to you, Representative. Well, that means so much to me. And, you know, what's so exciting about I mean, there's so many things that are so exciting about your race, honestly. Um, And I'll start with the big picture in saying that of the 35 Republican held districts that have now flipped to Democratic control, 22 of those districts were won by women. And your race in particular, the reason I wanted to have you on as we're talking about how we're going to win back the majorities in state legislatures and in the U.S. House um, and Senate in November is because you have such an inspiring story as an immigrant to this country. You're from Peru. Um, You worked three jobs uh, while going to school full time. You have um, a number of children. You are a strong progressive. You were a Bernie Sanders delegate, but then came around and worked very uh, hard for Hillary Clinton in the general election. You're really uniting the country, but you're inspiring um, immigrant women, women of color across the country. And I want you to just tell us a little bit more about your story first, because it is a powerful one. Oh, sure. Uh, Well, as you said, I'm originally from Peru. I came to this country as a single mother, like many immigrants uh, do, looking for better opportunities for my only daughter, Dan, Pamela. She's 26 now. She, I, I, when we came here, she was six. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I never imagined that educational and professional opportunities will become available to me at the beginning three jobs just to afford a one-bedroom apartment. But through hard work and dedication, I put myself through college. I put myself to graduate school. I've always worked full-time. What I went to school and raised my family. And now I have two master's degrees, one in public administration and a second one in social work. You know, and my experiences assured me that anyone in this country who's willing to sacrifice and work hard will be able to achieve the American dream. And that's why it was so important for me to run for office and then be now in the Virginia Assembly as the first Hispanic female immigrant. 
That is just amazing. And we are so, so proud uh, to have you there. What was it that made you want to run for office? I know I've got my own story about this, and I want people to hear what it is that sort of inspires people to run for office, because you weren't thinking about running for office, obviously, uh, for a long time. But was there something in particular? Yes. I mean, there were a few things, you know, as in Prince William County here in Virginia, we had for many years... We, w- we have been under Corey Stewart's reign. He is the chair of the County Board of Supervisors. And he implemented what it was to 87G. And it's an agreement, a partnership in between law enforcement and ICE to persecute people and just uh, inquire about immigration status for any reason. So I was a victim, of course, of profiling, of uh, being undocumented as well Mm -hmm. for many years. And I stood up against Corey Stewart. I stood up with Tim Kaine, trying to just remove that law that created a lot of division and actually affected the county where I live tremendously. It 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 was during the Great Recession, along with 287G, that made the prices and the economy of this county were really, really bad. Mm -hmm. So that happened. Then after that, I volunteered for Obama and then for Bernie Sanders. But one thing that Bernie said, you know, when he was doing his uh, concession speech to his delegates, because he did a town hall, like remotely. And one of the things that he said was like, uh, if we really believe in his message and the revolution, you know, Things happen at the state level and local level, and we need the change to start starts from bottom up. It's more if it's more effective. So I immediately reflect about my life as a minority person, where I in Prince William County in Virginia, and then I said maybe these things happen just because we don't have a voice that could explain to local legislators and state legislators that we are not what. Uh, Donald Trump and Cory Stewart describe immigrants, you know, are hardworking people. We do jobs that nobody wants to do just because we're looking for better opportunities. And maybe these things happen just because we don't have a voice. And that's why I did it. I did it because of that. And I did it because of my children. I mean, children of many people that are of color and I don't want them to just feel like they are different or they they are not Americans mm-hmm. because of their last name of the color of their skin. And I think one of the things, you know, as a first Indian American woman in the U.S. House and also the first South Asian elected to, the, to my state Senate before I ran for Congress, I think one of the things that having people like you in office does is it really allows people of color, women of color, to see their future possibilities differently because they can actually see somebody that looks like them or that reflects what they're going through or, you know, speaks for their voices in a way that um, says to them, oh, you know what, I could do that someday. And I think that's incredibly important. And in Virginia, there were 15 Virginia House seats that flipped to Democrats in that November election. And history was made in a number of ways. The first two Latinas affected, uh, elected, excuse me, but also the first ever Vietnamese American woman elected and the first ever transgender candidate elected. And I'm curious about what is going on um, in your state and what you think were the key success factors in your campaign to defeat, and we should just say this, an eight-term Republican incumbent. 
um, somebody who kept saying, oh, the Virginia isn't ready for, for an immigrant like you. What do you <laughs> yeah. think? What do you think it was? Was it was it? Um, well, I guess I, I was about to put words in your mouth and say, I think it's about the message, the messenger and the tactics. But tell us what you did to make your campaign successful. I think that one of the things that we do as women in general you know, we are multitaskers by nation, when we, by nature. Mm-hmm. You know, when we are passionate, when we do right. things. And we constantly, you know, uh, there's more and more working women. You know, I was looking at the statistics nationwide, and now at least 47% of women are working now, which is very uh, very different than interesting. before. Yeah, yeah, very different before. We have many housewives. So I think that we learn how to balance our professional lives with our personal lives, because we want to take care of both. We, many of us, you know, also the statistics show that on the job done by a female and a male, a female is the, do it more successfully. And I'm, I mean, I'm a feminist, but the, mm-hmm. the data proves yeah. it too. I, I'm, I'm with you. We, we, we have grown up managing babies and work and, and, uh, all of our creative ideas and tasks. And I think that there's no one that can multitask better than a woman. <laughs> exactly. And then when you're a woman of color, I yeah. think things are more difficult because not only we are pay less by the dollar, but mm-hmm. also we have to constantly prove our proof ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. We have if a regular if a male that's a job and they produce 50 percent, we have to produce 100 percent right. to 100 percent because we carry with us for the ones that are succeeding. We carry with us that responsibility to prove that we could do it and we could do it well mm-hmm. because we are changing, you know, that mindset for future generations. Yeah. Because when people look at uh, women like you and I, it's like, oh, wow, do you actually have office jobs? Right. Do you actually could be leaders? <laughs> right. And they are like, do you speak English? Do you, you, yeah, you, you yeah. must be naive. You must not understand what you're talking about. I always say that, you know, with women of color, it's like, you have to, um, b- people don't listen. The research shows people don't listen to women. And if they do listen, they don't believe us. And that's multiplied t- many times over when it's women of color. Exactly. So we have to, I think that we learn throughout the, I mean, the years to become resilient. But then at the same time, we never give up fighting Yeah. at any level. So that, I mean, a combination of that and then also here in Virginia, we had, you know, at least in my case, the amount, um, the length of residency that I had in my district, you know, I have people who work for you. I mean, we are including your staff and your volunteers who really believe in your message. Mm-hmm. Who I, I mean, as years as time was going by, I learned that many of my staff, they were raised by single mothers. Oh, interesting. So they came from different parts of the country, mm-hmm. Vermont, Arizona, North Carolina, Alaska, mm-hmm. just to work for my campaign because wow. they were driven by my message. And you did door so knocking, it, right? I mean, you were organizing exactly. and you were out talking to people on the doors. It wasn't just the message. You no, also used just, strategy. Exa- yes. And I, I think that as a candidate, you have the responsibility to learn, you know, about the issues in your district by knocking on doors. I think mm-hmm. that I am one of the candidates who knocked the most doors in the state. 
That's fantastic. But then at the same time, I had my message of I learned the issues because of my length of residency here in my district. But then at the same time, when I was at the doors, I want more than me bringing this is what I wanted to offer. I offer my listening ears. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to know what do they need from mm-hmm. me as a delegate? Because as you mentioned before, our delegate was in the Virginia Assembly for 16 years yeah. and I never met him. He never held a town hall. He never sent me a newsletter. He neglected me as his resident just because I didn't vote for him. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, you know, we also challenge ourselves because there were so many unhappy people in the Republican Party, unhappy with the current administration. So we wanted to take this opportunity as well to send our message of progress through those Republicans as well that were unhappy. So we talked to them as well. It was it was not easy, you know, mm-hmm. mainly for a, pe- a person looking like me. <laughs> yes. But I mean, they were, I would say they were not mean. Some of them refused to talk to you from the beginning. Yeah. But some of them listen to you and admire you because, I mean, immigration, it's an issue that touches everyone in this country, everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, either your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, their story were the same as ours. So it's like they will they believe in that American dream. Mm-hmm. So I think we work really hard. You know, we had volunteers. We had, you know, good stuff. But then our message was a message of the working class, mm-hmm. a message of progress, a message with everyone should have the same opportunities, a message of equality, a message, of, a message of respect. And I think that what and we work really hard. So. And it was a combination of all the above, you know, to just make this campaign, our campaign successful. Well, and you ran on Medicare for All, and now you have a bill to provide 40 hours of paid medical and family leave. And I think mm-hmm. you're showing that uh, something I've been talking about for some time. You know, I'm a proud progressive like you, but I don't think that these ideas like Medicare for All or a living wage or paid family leave, these aren't progressive ideas. They're just ideas that resonate for working families who are trying to provide for their families and trying to have opportunity for everyone. And I think, you know, the other thing you've done really well is you've used your immigrant story in a beautiful way. You haven't run away from it. You haven't hidden from it. It is a part of who you are, and it allows you to advocate for opportunity for all. So I think you've you've done an amazing job, and obviously um, we'll make this the last quick question because I have to move on, but you gave the, um, the Spanish language response for the Democratic Party for the State of the Union. Um, tell me how you felt doing that and what kind of response you got from that. Well, it uh, it was surprising to me. I'm not gonna lie. You know, I think <laughs> when that you got I'm that first leader. call, you must have been really <laughs> yeah. surprised. <laughs> exactly. You know, you and Leader Pelosi were on the list of female women that I wanted to get to know more at some point. But oh. these were just my first steps into politics, and they were on the list. You and her were on the list of important women that I wanted to get to know more. So when she called me, I and she offered me this opportunity, and she knew as well as you do my story, how hard I worked to win. I was like, wow, how did they know this? You know, I thought this was just to stay white. But, you know, but then at the same time, at that moment, it's like I had in my mind all of the bilingual representatives and senators that could have done this job, you know, better. But it's just for her to be thinking about me 
I was like very privileged and honored, and I did not hesitate to say yes, I will do it. Well, <laughs> I will do it because uh, you know I felt that response. I also I had a long term goal at some point to be able to address Spanish speaking people nationwide, but I didn't know that this would happen so soon to either. So it was just very you know everything was surprising, but I had to take advantage of that opportunity, and the responses have been great. You know, I have many people that reach out to me via Facebook, on my website, uh, email me about how they have feel inspired again to participate in the process and how they were citizens and they were registered to vote, but they didn't believe in the system and how they felt like they their role is important in this process. You know, so it is important. It is it was very, you know, it resonates with a lot of people with old type of immigrants, with working moms, with single mothers, everyone. I mean, because the translation in English also, I, it was available, so people knew what I was talking about. So it was it was a great experience, and I still feel honored, and I thank everyone for that opportunity, because Leader Pelosi also told me that I think it was a vote or it was a motion at the House of Representatives, so as the Senate House, and they, the both chambers unanim, unanimously selected me. So I'm privileged, I'm honored, and I hope I made everybody proud. Elizabeth Guzman, you make us so proud, and I know that there are women and men across this country who are listening to this podcast and hearing your voice and see you really as the present and the future of the Democratic Party and of our country. So thank you so much. I know we're going to get so many more chances to talk to you and watch all the incredible things that you do in Virginia, but also for all of us across the country. Thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I truly appreciate it. (laughs) And so let's end with a bit of poetry um, from our newest poet laureate here in Washington State, Seattle's own civic poet, Claudia Castro Luna. And this is from one of her poems called Seattle's Poem. We are not alone, save for his people. We are all immigrants here. Waiter, teacher, artist, worker, nurse. We belong. All of us belong. And with that, thank you for joining us for episode two of Stir the Pod. What'd you think? Did we stir things up? Who should I talk to next? Or what issues do you want me to tackle? Go to www.pramillaforcongress.com forward slash podcast to find all of the episodes or subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and connect with us online at twitter.com forward slash Pramila Jayapal. Talk to you next time and keep stirring it up. <laughs>